0: Let's prepare to worship the Lord by by considering His Word together. So if you want to open up to Revelation chapter 12, I'm going to go get my special prop. Show and tell this morning. I have a garden this summer, and I thought to show it off a little bit. So I've got a garden this summer, and uh, growing all kinds of different things, uh, far too many things to be honest. Most of them I don't even want to eat, but I just grew them anyway. Why did I do that? I don't know. But, uh, but anyway, you know, got c- cucumbers and tomatoes, watermelon, beets, radishes, all kinds of stuff, and pumpkins. Got pumpkins in the garden. I'd never done that before. And so I just wanted to share with you two of the pumpkins that I got to grow. <laughs> in my, Aren't these impressive? Uh, you're laughing. These are pumpkins. Obviously, these are pumpkins. And the rest of the box was filled with water bottles so that you would be more impressed as I carried the heavy box of pumpkins up here. (laughs) Thank you. But a very supportive wife on the front row. Um, Yes, thank you. Thank you, Paul. Uh, So I paid a lot of attention to the garden through the spring, you know, when you're getting things going. And stuff came up beautifully. And the pumpkin plants, I don't know if you know what pumpkin plants look like, but great big vines Great big leaves, great big flowers, they take, take over like a big part of the garden, and that's what's happened. Multiple pump, pumpkin plants in the garden. But then, as it turned to summer, I just stopped paying much attention to the garden. My eye left the ball. I wasn't playing defense in the garden. I was busy with other things. And so, I had a guest that moved in, It's called the squash vine borer. Oh, there's some other gardeners out here. The squash vine borer. If you can't tell from the name of this, it bores into the vines of squash plants. Squash vine borer comes in just above dirt level. Little insect burrows into the vine and eats the vine from the inside out. And just above dirt level is is right at the critical point for the plant. Because that's all the nutrients have to flow that way. And, and it, it's as though you just cut the vine right there. And everything downstream of it just withers and dies. All of a sudden, the flowers are hanging limp. The leaves dry up. And as you can tell, the fruit becomes useless. I guess that's a cute pumpkin, but it isn't any good for what you'd want to use pumpkins for. I suppose it's not too big a deal. To take your eye off the ball when it comes to a kind of a hobby garden. There's an enemy that works very similarly in our lives. And it's a much bigger deal. When we take our eye off the ball of what he's trying to do in the garden of our lives. Revelation chapter 12 gives us the strategy of the enemy. We're going to look at that together this morning. He's his strategy is not to ruin a garden. His strategy is, is to ruin the lives of believers. To, if possible, if possible, turn believers from the Lord. To stunt fruit and wither the vine and kill the good works that we would walk in. The stakes are high. And so let me just start by asking, before we even get to the passage, are you paying attention to the garden? Are you paying attention, or have, like me, have other things captured your attention? You've forgotten that the garden of our minds, what we believe is of vital importance to how we live and how we worship Jesus. So the text this morning is going to be the last paragraph in Revelation 12. If you were here two weeks ago, we did the first part of Revelation 12 together. We're going to be looking at the last paragraph, but to give the context for that, I want to go ahead and read the first paragraph of Revelation 12 just to catch you up if you weren't here uh, for the last time we were in this together. So follow along with me as I read Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So just to catch you up before we read the last paragraph and consider that together, this this uh, opening to Revelation 12 introduces us to three characters. One is about to be born, a male child who is to rule the nations with the rod of iron. This is speaking about Christ. This is Christ about to be born. And so, Revelation 12 is a very unusual birth narrative of Jesus. A little different than what we come across in, in the Gospels. Um, it doesn't tell us the details of Bethlehem, but it tells us the cosmic the uh, importance of Bethlehem. What's happening in that moment? Well, what's happening is the people of God are about to give birth to the Messiah. The people of God who have been pregnant with hope of the Messiah's coming are are about to give birth to the Messiah, and he will come uh, to, to rule the nations. But as the people of God prepare to give birth, so also the dragon, the enemy, Satan comes to destroy the one who's about to be born. And and if you're familiar with the birth narratives, you know how he did that through Herod, through the slaughter of the innocent. So Satan knows of the promise of the Messiah, and so he had long opposed it and was ready to stop Christ from being born. But, as it says, she gave birth to the child, God protected the child, God brought Christ up to heaven and has seated him on his own throne. The dragon, however, furious that his prize was stolen, that the son escaped and and is now safely enthroned in heaven, turns his angry gaze upon this helpless woman, the people of God. And that's where we leave off verse 6, and that's where it picks up in the last paragraph, verse 13. So come on down with me. We're going to skip that middle because we looked at that last week and we're going to pick up in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. God's word. So we have a remarkable story in scripture of the dragon pursuing this woman. I mean, it it is written in fairy tale language. It is no fairy tale, but it's written in fairy tale language of this evil dragon pursuing this woman. And that's how we begin the paragraph as he pursues her who has just given birth to this male child. But then Miracle of miracles, she's able to get away from the dragon. This is unexpected. She's not in a great place for escape, having just given birth. And she's facing a dragon, who let's assume is stronger and faster. And yet suddenly, verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. So Here's the dragon prowling up towards her, ready to pounce upon her. Suddenly, she's caught up with eagle's wings and soars high above him. You can almost see the dragon getting smaller and smaller below, raging with fists in the sky. Do dragons have fists? I don't know. Raging into the sky as the woman flees from him. Now, what's going on with this? This is a picture of God protecting his people. This is a picture of, of God removing them from the presence of this dragon that God's people could be defended and kept safe. He uses the picture of eagle's wings, which, which shows her soaring high above, completely out of the ability of the dragon to reach. This isn't the first time in the Bible that he uses eagle's wings as a picture for his protection of his people back in the book of Exodus, when they had escaped from Egypt and God brought them into the wilderness, he then speaks to them these words. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Oh, this is a picture of God protecting and providing for his people, removing them from danger, speedily and triumphantly and far above the reach of the enemy, and so it is again. God protects His people. Yes, He He leads them away from the dragon so that they're safe. Yes, and then He takes them to a wilderness because that's where it goes in verse fourteen. Two wings like the uh, of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. We might question the w- wisdom of that you've got wings. Let's go somewhere better than the wilderness, right? But the Lord in his wisdom has a plan for his people, delivers his people from the enemy into the wilderness. This is also the pattern we saw in Exodus, where God delivered his people out of Egypt. We might say out of the great clutches of the dragon in Egypt, where they were in bondage and where God's people were being killed by the Egyptians, he delivers them out, carries them on eagle's wings, as he says, and delivers them not first into the promised land, but first into the desert. The desert is, as we know, hot and dry and hostile and inhospitable. It is a picture of the reality for the church in this age in which we live. Talking about right now, the age in which we live. We are, for the most part, outside of the power structures of this world. On the outside of the the social in-crowd of this world. And often on the losing end of persecution in this world. The church is pictured as being in the wilderness. And finishing up verse 14, it says, To the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. Count with me. A time and times and half a time. I don't have half a finger. So like this. Okay? Three and a half. What that adds up to. So just as an aside to help you read your Bible, when you see three and a half years in Daniel or in Revelation, or when you see its equivalent. Alright, there's a couple equivalent ways that it talks about it. It'll do three and a half years in terms of months you know how many months is three and a half years? 42 months, okay? 42 months is three and a half years. Or if you do it in terms of days, that's 1,260 days, All right? All of these are different ways of talking about the same period of time. The book of Daniel, book of Revelation, uses this period of time over and over. In fact, we just used the 1,260 days back in verse 6 of this chapter. Okay? These are all talking about the same period of time. What is this period of time? It is the period of time in which the church dwells upon the earth. The period of time from Christ's first coming to his second coming. It is, according to this particular passage, the time in which the church is kept in the wilderness, protected by God. Now, does that mean that, that this time means that the church is only existing for three and a half years? No, it's, it's not meaning to, to tell us how long that time is because no one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. No one knows except the Father, not even the Son, knows the time of his return, right? So this isn't trying to tell us the precise length of time. It is trying to tell us that the length of time is precise. It is, de- it is definitive. It has been decided. God knows how long his people will be in the wilderness. He has ordained these days, these months, these years. He's prepared a place for his people in the wilderness for this length of time, which he is sovereign over. So it tells us that God knows how long his people will be in the wilderness, how long between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And it assures us that those days will come to an end. So God's people in the Old Testament We're not just delivered out of Egypt into the wilderness, end of the story. That's not the end of the story. They were in the wilderness for a definite period of time, and then God led them into the promised land. So friends, this is not the end of our story either. The church is in the wilderness right now. Yes, that's true. But we won't always be. The promised land is coming. The days will come to an end. And once these days come to an end, new days will begin that have no end where God's people are with him for all time in his promised land. Glory to God. That's encouraging. All right. So, nonetheless, we aren't home yet. We've been brought to the wilderness away from the clutches of the dragon. But The dragon's not done. Verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. So that the dragon issues a stream of water out of his mouth. Apparently, this place in the wilderness so protects God's people that the dragon cannot personally get to her. He's unable to reach her at this place where she's at. And so, unable to physically get to her, he sends this flood after her. Now, what is this flood coming from his mouth? So throughout the book of Revelation, when when something comes out of the mouth of an individual, those are uh, pictures of words. Pictures of words, which would make sense, right? Coming out of our mouths. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 1, John sees the risen Christ as he is, And what does he see of Christ? He sees a sharp, two-edged sword proceeding from the mouth of Christ, right? And what is this sword? What is this talking about? This is talking about his word, right? Christ governs all things by his word. His word is powerful. How will he slay his enemies? His word. How will he conquer his his enemies? His word. How does he govern his people? By his word. And so this sharp, two-edged sword proceeding from the mouth of Christ are the words of Christ. Well, here is the usurper serpent whose words have a power of their own, not to be compared to the power, the words of Christ. And yet, far more powerful than the woman. Not as powerful as the lamb, but far more powerful than the woman. And so words come flying out of His mouth, targeting the church, targeting God's people. Now, when Christ speaks, how does He speak? Christ speaks truth, because He is the way and the truth and the life. When He speaks, He speaks according to His own character. And so true words proceed from the mouth of Christ, and in the same way, the serpent speaks of His own character. His words are not truth. They are lies. Jesus says of him back in the Gospels, speaking of the devil, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Those are remarkable pictures. He is a liar and he is the father of lies. So, getting our arms around, what is this flood? This is a flood of words. What kind of words? Lies. This is a flood of lies meant to drown the church. How does the dragon seek to destroy the church? How does the serpent seek to drown the woman? How does he seek to deceive you and your friends and your family and your neighbors? It is lies. What are the enemy's weapons? Lies. What is his strategy? Lies. What's his plan? Lies. So let me ask you again, are you paying attention to the garden of your mind where the enemy right now targets his attacks at your mind? Are you awake and alert to this reality? This is no fiction. We have an enemy and he is targeting us with his lies. That said, the lies are cunning. It's not always obvious. I think if it were always obvious, they wouldn't be very good lies. I think the enemy is an expert at lying. 92% truth. It's just enough error to destroy people. Lies are like they're they're invisible. Oh, friends, this is what's so hard. We probably aren't even aware of, of where we believe. That's how good he is. There's no, there's no Christian walking in to church on Sunday, overtly saying or probably believing. You know what? I don't really believe God's word today. I and building my life on the word of the dragon. Nobody does that. And yet, we all do that in pernicious, difficult-to-detect ways where he has twisted our thinking about God, about his word, about this world, about ourselves. And, and it's pernicious like this, this uh, squash vine borer I've never seen one. But I can tell when they've been there. If you if you want to know the secret, my garden's out back. You can go see a lot of dead squash plants. It's traumatic as squash plants go. You know. Uh, You can see the effect of the vine borer. Friend, you can see the effect of believing lies. Because everything in our life is downstream of the lies. In other words, like what you speak is going to come out of what you think. What you do is going to come out of what you think. What your passions are, what you're excited about, your emotions, all of it flows out of what do you believe about God, about his word, about what he says about you. Are you building on what he said or is there an admixture, another voice? creeps in at that level and destroys the rest of the vine downstream of the lie. So two areas I would encourage everyone here to consider together. Two areas of of lies. And Lord give wisdom. uh, It is simply described as a flood. A river like a flood. I became aware as I was seeking to prepare this morning what a hopeless task it would be for me to list for you the lies of the enemy. It is a flood. It is all over the place. It is far beyond number or counting. There's one truth and an infinite number of ways to distort any one truth. Infinite number. Having said that, there are two areas that I would encourage you to examine, please examine. Okay. Please examine first your entertainment intake. Church, examine your entertainment intake. No, nobody here is surprised to know, oh, you know, sometimes entertainment is hostile to my worldview. Seems like sometimes people delight in sin in entertainment rather than delighting in godliness or perhaps don't believe in God. I grew up hearing that, you know, Hollywood was evil. I don't think I've moved too much from that perspective, to be fair. What this tells us, though, is, no, it's not that our battle is against flesh and blood. It is that there is a dragon behind it who is targeting his words at at our church, at your life, at your kids. Friends, there is an enemy behind entertainment out there. What does he use? Words and messages. Parents, would you, would you come up on the wall and guard the walls of your home? Guard the walls, first of your mind, and then of your kids' minds. Would you teach your, your teenagers what wisdom looks like? Because we all like entertainment. We all, we all like a good movie on a Friday night. And if that becomes the governing priority, I promise you're just opening the gates to a flood of lies. And parents understand, you have a sort of resistance to some lies that your children do not have. There are generational lies flooding at our kids right now. And if you do not defend them, no one will. And there is a dragon behind it. It's not a culture war. It's a cosmic war. And the dragon is after the people of God. He's after your kids. So set an example. Guard the gates. Turn it off. Change the channel. Okay. That's one and probably the most obvious one of how does the enemy pour into our lives his lies. The second, I think, is the one that I find harder in my own heart to get my arms around. And that is, examine this. Examine your thinking about God. Examine your thinking about God. Okay? Now listen, as I've already said, everybody comes in and you're going to say orthodox things about God. You're going to say that God is good. You're going to say that he's wise you're going to raise your hands and you're going to sing worship songs proclaiming those things. And yet, the enemy works to undermine what we see and what we believe about God. This was the strategy in the garden as he came to Adam and Eve and said, Did God really say this? What kind of a God would say something like that? Oh, He he only said that because he knows if you do that, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. You see how he's twisting the character of God in the minds of our parents. We are susceptible to that. He came to Christ himself when Christ had been 40 days without food and perniciously says, if you are the son of God, this is a funny way for God to treat his son out here in the wilderness for 40 days. Friends, when life gets hard, the enemy gets talking. And he will begin, it's, it's, the, the enemy is not the trial. God give you grace for trials. The enemy is not the disease. God give you grace for disease. The enemy isn't these difficult things, losses and pain and suffering. The problem is that during loss, pain, suffering, disease, the dragon comes in with the words from his mouth to drown out your faith in God. And to convince you, you know, if God really loved you. You know, if he was really paying attention. If he's really good. So, probably the place you can detect this most is at the order of feelings. When you're suffering, when you're tempted, what are your feelings towards God? Those will, those will reveal something of your thinking towards God and I would encourage you to talk with your friends, your spouse, your care group. Um, Do my thoughts of God reflect the words of Christ or the words of the dragon? God help me to discern the difference that I could build my life on the words of Christ. Okay. So, up to now, we've talked about the pursuit of the dragon. The dragon pursuing this woman and using uh, God's people... And, and using lies to do so. So the pursuit of the, the dragon. And now briefly, I just want to do the other part of this. The provision of the Savior. So The pursuit of the dragon, now the provision of the Savior. So we're reading a story. It's a true story. It's a historic story. But it's told to us as a story. And as the story opens, we have this vulnerable woman about to give birth fearful for her life as she's bringing the Messiah into the world. There she lays, vulnerable before the vicious dragon. But then, her child is saved and she's carried away on eagle's wings to the wilderness. Yes, it's a wilderness. It's no place of comfort or ease. But, within that wilderness, it is a place of provision. Verse 14. A little phrase I don't want us to overlook flew uh, from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. There's the church in the wilderness. The dwelling of jackals and of rodents, hot and dry and forbidding, and yet there is the church nourished in the wilderness. Nourished by God, like the Israelites of old who survived and thrived in the wilderness. The church knows the secret to wilderness survival. And the secret is she's not alone in the wilderness. She's being provided for in the wilderness. There is manna in the wilderness, dear church. There's manna in the wilderness. Supernatural bread. Unexpected provision. They had manna back then, right? They were out in the wilderness, far away from the supplies, the farms, any sense of being able to do this for themselves. Yet God provided manna for his people. Why did God provide manna for them? Two reasons. One, they needed it. Historic reality, they needed it. Second, that we could learn from it. That we could learn God provides for his people even in the wilderness. And so, there is a, the wilderness is still the wilderness, but oh, a place prepared? A place prepared to nourish his people. Glory to God for preparing such a place for us. God didn't bring his people to the wilderness to destroy them, but to nourish them, to tend to them, to grow them. So, do we have an enemy? Yes, we do. He is Violent and he is vicious. But do we not have a God, dear church, that provides for us in the face of that enemy? The enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. Our Savior comes that we might have life and have it abundantly. He provides for his people. But what of that flood of lies then that comes into the wilderness looking for God's people in verse 15. Well, we can see the ending of that in the following verse. Read with me verse 16. So the the river came out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and Hold to the testimony of Jesus. He stood on the sand of the sea. Earth came to the defense of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river. These are interesting words, choices, right? The enemy opens his mouth and out comes a river to destroy the woman. But then the earth opens its mouth to swallow the river. This, again, is a picture of the protecting provision of God for his people. He is the Lord of all the earth and he commands that his people be kept safe. He actually commanded the earth to open its mouth and swallow some false prophets back in the book of Exodus if you're familiar. And it it opened its mouth and away went the enemies of God's people. Well once again the earth is opening its mouth to swallow up the lies that God's people would be kept safe from this Torrent of lies from the enemy. Now, are we going to see people swept away by the flood? Yes, we will. Even some in the church, some who we thought were Christians, will be susceptible to this and will be swept away. And in fact, churches, entire churches are swept away. And in fact, Entire denominations are swept away by rivers of lies that distort God's Word and would speak other things about Christ, other things about humans, other things about God, other things about sin, other things about judgment. Not all people are kept, but all of God's people are kept. God causes His people to be safe. The Lord keeps His people. He is our strong tower. He is our defender. He is our fortress. He is our shield. He is our strength. So, the dragon is much stronger than the woman. It's part of the picture, isn't it? The dragon is much stronger than the woman, and yet the woman has a defender. The Lord God Almighty who has the dragon on his leash, and who is more than able to keep his people safe. So ultimately, these lies fail to drown the church. Verse 17 then tells us what the enemy does. He turns to strategies other than lies. The dragon became Furious with the woman. Went off to make war the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God. Hold to the testimony of Jesus. We're going to see in chapter 13 the war that he brings to the church. Two beasts that come rising up that he uses to continue his pursuit of the church. But here's what's happened in the chapter. The woman began... Vulnerable to the dragon. He was about ready to pounce. And here at the end of the chapter, it didn't work. She's totally safe. The dragon has been foiled over and over and over. Oh, she's vulnerable. Eagle's wings. Oh, she's vulnerable. Earth opens up. This has got to be frustrating to be the dragon. No matter what he's done to this point, it has failed. It has failed over and over and over. And The other way to consider that is that God prevails over and over and over. He keeps his people. He provides for his church. She's not been consumed or harmed or drowned. Her enemy has been frustrated and stopped and prevented from doing what he wants to do. Even in the wilderness, the church has a secret of survival, and that is that she is not alone. Friends, we are not alone. In the wilderness, our God is with us. Our God is with you, friends, as you walk in this life. So, our God is our defender, and He is our strong tower. So we got, we're going to hold two realities. Right, we've got a powerful God. We've got a fearsome enemy. So, if only if this passage only considered the enemy, ah. Uh, We of all people should be hopeless in light of an enemy like this. Thanks be to God, we're not alone in our fight against the enemy. So, this should produce something in us, and it's not apathy. It's not, well, God is stronger, so don't worry about it. No, this passage is not given to us that we would not worry about it. This passage is given to us that we would arm ourselves against the enemy knowing that our God is the one who holds us up, right? So God is the one who holds us up. So so dads, defend your family from the torrents of lies coming in through entertainment. Guard your hearts and your minds, men and women. Be in God's Word. Seek to discern the difference between true thoughts of God and lies about God in your own life. Protect your minds. Guard your thoughts. Defend your kids. Listen closely to God's Word, knowing that we have a defender who is able to take our weak efforts and use them for His glory and for our good, for the good of Mercy Hill, for the good of your family. So let us stand and be alert. And you just thought I meant stand, so go ahead and stand. Note to self, don't use the word stand near the end of a sermon. Go ahead and stand. (laughs) What I meant to say was stand um, in the sense of standing despite the enemy, waiting for the salvation of our God, which is better than just standing here. Okay, worship team, come on up. Lord, I pray that you would give us discernment. Where have we opened the floodgates into our minds and our families? Would you would you forgive us, Lord? Would you protect us, Lord? Would Would you give us discernment where have lies of the enemy, particularly about you and your character, seeped down into our souls, doing their pernicious work even now on the vine. Oh, we're so thankful for the Holy Spirit who is our helper and our comforter. Would you be at work in us, revealing truth, teaching us to repent of the lies of the enemy. In Jesus' name, amen.